0: We are in a sermon series going through the book of Acts, uh, but today I'd have you to turn your Bible to the book of Philippians. If you've been here, you know this. and If you haven't, I want you to know this, that as we've gone through the book of Acts and we bump into different places or different people from time to time, we want to take a break out of the book of Acts and kind of overview those people in those places. So, for example, we did that when we got to Galatia. We overviewed one Sunday The book of Galatians, we did that when we met James back at the church in Jerusalem and we overviewed his epistle. And last week, Acts chapter 16, the gospel made it to the continent of Europe. You probably remember the Holy Spirit very specifically said no to Paul as Paul wanted to head east with the gospel. And the Holy Spirit turned him west toward the continent of Europe. And when they get there, they get to this city called Philippi. And when they got there, things started happening really fast. They shared, first of all, the gospel with a very successful woman by the name of Lydia who was doing super well in her world and in her life. But she didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul shared the gospel Lydia. And all of her household uh, was converted to Christ. They followed the Lord in believers' baptism. And then right on the heels of that, they met a woman who was on the opposite end of the spectrum. She was a young slave girl that had been possessed by a future-telling demon. And she was following Paul and his missionary partners around for a while until Paul had just had enough and he turned around and he called the demon to come out of her, which he did. And I believe that young lady also was saved by the power of Jesus on that day as well. But that wasn't good for her owners. That kind of shut down... Their business as they were using her to profit off her demon possession. And so they stirred up a a violent mob to come against Paul and Silas. They had them arrested, they had them beaten severely, and then they were thrown into prison. But you may remember that at midnight, what were Paul and Silas doing? They were singing and praising God, worshiping God, praying, having church really in the middle of the inner dungeon of that Philippian jail there and the earthquake is sent by God I believe and the Bible says not just Paul and Silas's door opens up but all the doors of the entire prison were opened up the warden comes rushing in seeing all these doors standing wide open and he's just about to take his own life because If he's lost one single prisoner, that's what's going to happen to him anyway. He's going to be executed. And Paul yells at him, hey, don't do that because nobody's gone anywhere. Isn't that crazy that all these prisoners had an opportunity to walk out into freedom and they didn't take it because they had discovered more freedom in Christ in the middle of a dungeon than they would ever experience without Christ outside of that dungeon. So Paul and Silas were used by God To turn that Philippian jail into this evangelistic crusade. God's on the move. I can only assume that many of those prisoners gave their lives to Jesus as well. The Bible doesn't specifically speak to that. But it does specifically speak to this. That warden that was about to take his own life. He looks at Paul and Silas and he says, hey, tell me what do I need to do to be saved? I want what you have. He gave his life to Christ. He invited Paul and Silas into his home that night. His entire household comes to know and love Jesus. They're baptized. God's on the move. And so all of a sudden, we got this crazy collection of new Christians in this place called Philippi. You've got rich, well to do people like Lydia and her household. You've got a young, former demon-possessed slave girl in that congregation. You've got the jailer and his household that are a part of that church family. You've probably got a bunch of ex-cons that were there in the prison that night, and they were saved that night. They're a part of that church family as well. I just love this group of people. What an eclectic bunch of ragtag, Jesus-loving people we have in the church at Philippi, the first church in Europe. Paul leaves there. He goes on about... Uh, that second missionary trip, he'll come back about five years later in the middle of his third missionary trip, and he'll follow up with them at that time. And then about five years after that, Paul is a prisoner in Rome. He's actually under house arrest in Rome. Prisoners in the ancient world were in Rome were actually rarely sent to prison. That was kind of reserved for just uh, the, the very violent and those that were Waiting for trial. Oftentimes, more times than not, uh, people would be put under house arrest. They would be given a very small, modest place to live. And in Paul's case, he's chained to a Roman guard the entire time. And he bears the financial responsibility to pay a little bit of rent for that small place where he's imprisoned and to pay for his own food, his own accommodations, if you will. And the church at Philippi had heard about their old friend Paul. They heard about his imprisonment there in Rome. And so they wanted to support him financially. So they did what churches do. They took up an offering. And they tapped one of their pastors, probably one of their pastors, by the name of Epaphroditus. And they said, we want you to take this to Rome. Go find where Paul is and, and let this be a help to him and let this support him. Well, for Epaphroditus to get from Philippi to find Paul in Rome, that's probably going to take him the better part of a month. And by the time Epaphroditus gets to Paul, Epaphroditus has come down with something. He's pretty sick. And so he ends up staying there with Paul. Timothy's actually there as well. And so they're there together until Epaphroditus gets well enough that he can return back to Philippi. But before he goes back to Philippi, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, Paul dictates a letter probably to Timothy. And Timothy writes it down, closes it up, hands it to Epaphroditus... And he delivers that letter back to Philippi. And you and I have that letter in our Bible today. We call it the book of Philippians. And so if you haven't gotten there already, I hope that you will. We're going to fly over the book of Philippians today at about 10,000 feet. We we could dig in Philippians for about a year. But like we did with Galatians, we just want to fly over this. And I want you to know that although Paul is a prisoner, chained to a Roman soldier as he's writing this, he's full of that joy that we were talking about with the boys and girls earlier. In spite of these circumstances, in spite of all the suffering that he's been through in his life, his heart, his mind are still calibrated around Jesus, others, and and then Paul somewhere down on that list. His letter to his friends back at Philippi is quite different if you remember his letter to the Galatians. When he wrote that letter, he was pretty ticked off. He was upset. He was angry with what had been going on there. But here, this letter to the Philippians, Paul's not calling anybody out. He doesn't have any harsh words. That's not his tone. In fact, it's a letter that's filled with joy. You'll find the word joy or rejoicing about 16 times in this four-chapter little letter. Not only does Paul write a letter that's filled with joy, but he writes a letter that's filled with Jesus. Jesus is the theme of his letter, and you'll find Jesus, his name mentioned in some shape, form, or fashion no less than 40 times across these four chapters. And Paul's writing this letter because he wants to encourage his friends. He wants to encourage the Christians, the church back at Philippi. He wants to encourage them to remain united. Remain united and filled with a Jesus-centered joy. That's what he wants for that group of people that had found such a special place in his heart for them to be united around Jesus-centered joy. Don't you want to be a part of a church like that where there is a unity in Jesus-centered joy? It's Jesus and others and you among all the people there. How can we be a church like that? How can we strive to be united in Jesus-centered Joy, You know, if you find a collection of people today with that kind of unity and that kind of joy, that's a pretty rare thing to find, right? You know that. Last night, there was a basketball game in in Coleman Coliseum down in Tuscaloosa. At the end of that game, there was a lot of happiness. There was some unity around what had happened there, but there wasn't a unity around joy. It It was just unity around a fleeting moment. If you've ever been a coach, you know that they can turn on you the very next game, right? So if you can find a collection of people where you've got this kind of unity and joy, you found a really rare thing. You might find unity, like last night, but it won't be joy. Or you might find some people who have some temporary happiness, but it's not true unity, it's not true joy. It might be easier today to find a purple unicorn, than to find a collection of people who are actually of one heart, one mind, with real joy as the glue that holds them together. But but guess what? God's called us to be that purple unicorn. (laughs) God's called us to be a collection of people like that that walk in that kind of unity and that kind of Jesus-centered joy, displaying that true unity and true joy. That's what God intends. That's what God wants for us. And I believe that's what we're hungry for. I believe that's what we want as well. And so with the help of my old friend, Warren Wearsby, who is with the Lord now, just not too many years ago, but he could outline a book like nobody's business. We want to look at this letter to the Philippians today. And I'll think, I think you're going to see that Paul draws our attention to this. There's actually four sources that we have to draw from that can produce this unity and joy among a collection of believers. Four important sources for us that provides this unity and joy that we long for chapter one tells us what the first source of our unity and joy is it is our message it's our message by the way there's a listening guide inside your worship guide today if you want to fill in some blanks and follow along there you're welcome to do that our message is the first source of our unity and joy with each other what is our message our message is the gospel what is the gospel the gospel is the good news That even though we're sinners, God loved us and he sent his only son into the world, Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect and a sinless life. He died as a substitute for us on the cross of Calvary. God raised him from the dead on the third day. And if we will believe on him, we will not perish but have everlasting life. This is our message. And let me tell you, according to Paul's letter in chapter 1 of Philippians, let me tell you what this message does. Number one, the gospel gives us partners in the church. You know, there's a a pandemic in our world right now called loneliness. People are alone. They don't have partners to live life with, to do God-centered things with, great things with. But the gospel provides us with partners in the church. We don't have to go at this alone. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. This letter is from Paul and Timothy Slaves of Christ Jesus, they're partners, right? And he says, I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. All of these people are in a partnership like no other. So are you today, if you're a follower of Jesus. We are partners in the gospel, partners in the good news that here's what the world needs to know. There's salvation available in Jesus. We have partners in this, partners in the gospel, in Christ. He mentions here deacons and leaders and all the saints in Philippi. And I'm thankful for the partners at Grace Life who park cars and change diapers and teach classes and hand out worship guides and scrub toilets and lead worship and run the stuff back there. All that stuff, partners in ministry. We're all aiming to do the same thing. Listen to how Paul speaks about these people. And you can hear the joy in him. He says, verse 3, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with what? Joy. joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. He just seems to have a flashback to Lydia, Right? and the slave girl, and the jailer, and the prisoners. He says, you've been my partners from day one till right now. And I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news, the gospel. God knows how much I love you and I long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. Do you hear the depths? of this gospel-centered partnership that Paul has. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. Don't you love this church at Philippi? Don't you? He says, for I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. He says, you're my partners. In the ministry, you're my partners in the gospel, and I love you deeply, and I thank God for you, and I'm praying for you, and all this is to the glory of God. So the gospel's given them this partnership that runs to the depths of their souls. They truly love each other. They truly care about each other. Look, this is not a business partnership. This is way past that. And this is family. It's the family of God. And this family of God in Philippi, they are united together. And Paul wants to make sure they stay that way. United together in Jesus-centered joy. The message of the gospel hasn't only created this partnership we share, but the message of the gospel has also given us purpose that we share. We share the same purpose, Skylar. The gospel gives us this purpose. Look at verse 12, and he says, And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, That everything that has happened to me here, what? Going to prison, suffering, right? He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that everything that's happened to me here has helped to spread the good news, the gospel. Man, isn't that great? Paul says, we're we're partners together in the gospel, but we have a purpose together in the gospel. And our purpose is to spread the good news of Jesus throughout the world. He says, verse 13, watch this. For everyone here, Rome's a big city. And he says, for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, all of Caesar's boys, they know that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. We have that same purpose, don't we? We have that same purpose in the gospel, to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with people that don't know Jesus yet. But listen, church, the purpose that we share in the gospel is not just to bring people into the church, but it's also to build the people up that are already in the church, And that's our gospel purpose as well. Look at what Paul says in verse 21. For to me, he says, living means living for Christ. That's the source of joy, right? Jesus first. And dying is even even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I, I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes... It's better that I continue to live. He says, knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow. Do you hear a little bit of the disappointment in Paul's voice? I guess i got to keep on living. For me, I would rather go on and be with the Lord. But for you, I guess I'll be sticking around a bit. Why? He says, to help all of you grow and to experience the joy of your faith. In other words, he says, I want, you to, I want you to know what I know. I want you to know the Lord like he's allowed me to come to know him. And these are his partners. They share this partnership together. They share this purpose together as we do. The message of the gospel has given us this partnership and this purpose of bringing people into the church and building the people up in the Lord once they're in the church The third thing he says the gospel gives us is peace in our struggles. We have partnership, we have purpose, but praise the Lord, we also have peace because there will be struggles. He says, verse 27 Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together. That's unity language, isn't it? I'll know that you're still united. With one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you're going to be saved even by God himself. What is the sign to them that that's what's going to happen? Their boldness, their fearlessness, the peace that they have in their life, in their hearts, in the face of adversity They won't be able to explain that. Verse 29, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. There's are struggles. Paul says we can't avoid them, but we have the peace of God when we're in them. The gospel, our message, gives us this partnership that we have together. It gives us this purpose that we have together. And it gives us this peace that we have in the midst of our struggles. Now, not only are we united in this Christ-centered joy because of the message that we carry, but chapter 2, we're united in this Jesus-centered joy because of the example or the model that we've been given. Our model. Who is our model? Who is our example? It's Jesus. Whenever you're in church, anybody ask a question, just go with Jesus. It's like circling the letter C, bubbling that in on your ACT. It's just probably most likely going to be the right answer, all right? You're right. Jesus is our model. He is our example. What does Paul say in chapter 2 that Jesus models for us? First of all, Jesus sacrificed himself. He set an example. He modeled that for us. In chapter 2, Paul reminds them that he wants them to be united together, and so he points them to to Jesus, our model. Verse 2, he says, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Again, unity language, right? Loving one another. Working together with one mind and purpose. How does that happen? Don't be selfish. Sacrifice self, right? Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. That's the path of joy, right? Jesus, others, and you. He's saying sacrifice yourselves because that's what Jesus, our example, our model did. He points them to Jesus. Verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God is something to cling to. This is how sacrificial he is. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Merry Christmas, right? That's the That's the Christmas story. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Paul says, listen, the the way that we're going to have this united Jesus-centered joy is that we remember our message. But you got to remember our model. And Jesus is our model. And he sets the example for self-sacrifice. Not only does he set the example for self-sacrifice, but Jesus surrendered to the Holy Spirit. While wrapped in human flesh, he was constantly in fullness of and surrendered to God's Holy Spirit. Paul learned that principle of surrendering to the Holy Spirit. He learned that principle of being filled with the Spirit. That's why I would tell the church at Ephesus in chapter 5 of that letter, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, right? So he says, verse 13 of chapter 2 of Philippians, for God is working where? In In you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit in us, giving you the desire, and not only the desire, and the what? Power. It's not your power. It's the power of God. The power to do what pleases Him. In other words, the only way you and I can live lives that are pleasing to God is when we surrender to the Holy Spirit and His power operates in us and through us. Jesus modeled that for us. And when we do that, when we surrender to the Holy Spirit, our lives look a lot more like verses 14 and 15. He says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Anybody missed that target this past week, by the way? (laughs) Some of you right now in your own brain, you're complaining and arguing, right? But you know what happens when we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit? Complaining and arguing, it has no place anymore. When we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit, you know, some people say, well, I'm a pessimist. My my cup is half empty. I'm an optimist. My cup is half full. You know what the spirit-filled person says? My cup runs over, right? I don't want to be a pessimist today. I don't even want to be an optimist today. I want to be filled with the Spirit of Almighty God today. Jesus is our model in that. He sets the example. He's our model for what self sacrifice looks like. He's our model for what surrender to the Holy Spirit looks like. And He's also our model for what serving other people looks like. He served others. Paul already spoke about Jesus taking the form of a servant in verse 7 of chapter 2. And by the way, the church at Philippi, they knew really well what it meant to serve. Paul's going to Reference Timothy here in chapter 2. Timothy knew what it was to serve. He's going to reference Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus knew what it was to serve even when he was very ill. They had all learned how to serve from who? From Jesus. He's the model. And Paul reminds them here that following Jesus' example of being a servant, that's the way. Stick to that path. Stick to that way. Verse 17, Paul says, but I will rejoice. There's that word again even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. That's the way. That's the path. Following Jesus, our model sacrificing self, surrendering to the Holy Spirit, serving others, that's an offering to God and that brings joy. Verse 18, yes, you should rejoice and I will share your joy. You tracking with us here, Grace Life? This this is how we're united, not just together, but this is how we're united to a church like the church at Philippi from 2,000 years ago in this Jesus-centered joy. Over and over, Paul's reminding this church of the importance of being united in this Jesus-centered joy. How? Remember the message, the gospel. Remember the model. Who's the model? That's Jesus. Number three, chapter three, remember your motives. What's going to motivate you? What's going to motivate you in this pursuit of unity around Jesus-centered joy? First thing that ought to motivate us and motivated Paul It's his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, Jesus' righteousness. It was the righteousness of Jesus that had been given to Paul, right? Been given to Paul, not earned. Righteousness, God's righteousness is given by grace, by grace alone, through faith alone. And that was Paul's motivation. And he wants to encourage the Philippians, keep this as your motivation too. Listen to what he says. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. And watch this. He's about to have a flashback about 15 years to Galatia. Listen to verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved or you must be whatever, fill in the blank, to be saved. Paul calls those people dogs. He says, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. What he means by that is there is a change that has truly happened in us, but it's not a change to the flesh that we did. It's a change of our heart that God has done. He says, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason." for confidence in their own efforts I have even more Paul says we're not hoping we're not boasting and we're not counting on anything that we've done for ourselves to make ourselves right with God Paul says but if it was a contest to see who was the best religious person I'd win every single time but I'd still lose he says verse five here's how good I was I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, I once thought these things would make me right with God. I once thought these things would earn God's approval. I once thought these things would reward me with eternal life. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through what? Through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. God, I wish you were Pentecostal some Sundays. <laughs> For God's way of making us right with himself depends on... Faith, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul is this kind of guy that they go, if you don't shut up talking about Jesus being Lord, we're going to put you in prison. He's going, great, because revival breaks out every time I go into prison. Well, if you want to go to prison then, we're just going to kill you. Well, that'll be great, because then I'm just one step closer to getting resurrected. Paul's motive behind all that he does, the source of the fire in his belly, is the righteousness of Jesus that was given to him by grace through faith. What a gift. What a reason for motivation. There's another motivation, as if you needed another one, but there's another motive for pursuing a united, Jesus-centered joy with each other, and that's not only Jesus' righteousness, but his reward. Paul says in verse 14, I press on to reach the end ...of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. There's a prize that Paul's aiming for. What is that prize? I think it's Jesus face to face. And to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. There's a third motive. Not just his righteousness, not just his reward... But the third motivation for us and for Paul in this pursuit of united, Jesus-centered joy is his return. Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? Paul says, verse 20, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. Tell me, Sybil. Amen. He lives within my heart. And we eagerly, we're eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. He's going to take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. What have we said? How can we be resolute, Grace Life, in our aim to be united together in Jesus-centered joy? Remember our message. It's the gospel. Remember our model. His name is Jesus. Remember our modus. Number four, chapter four. Remember our means. Our means or our resources, our provisions that God has blessed us with. Look, we don't have to spiritually scrape around in this world trying to find the spiritual resources that we need. The Bible says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The Bible says he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. He has blessed us abundantly. And Paul points to three blessings three blessings or resources or means that God has given us for this life. The first one is this I've got God's people beside me. I'm so thankful for that today. Aren't you? Man, I am so thankful that I don't have to go through this life by myself. But I got brothers, I got sisters. Walk in the same, walk with me. We got God's people beside me. Paul says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Paul's mindful of the people here that God had put into his life. He didn't know them. He didn't even want to go there. Remember that? He didn't even want to go to Philippi. God drug him to Philippi, kicking and screaming. Some of you are trying to resist what the Lord's doing in your life, and oh my gracious, the blessing that he has waiting for you, if you just do what he's asking you to do. Paul says, I'm so thankful now for these people that God has put beside me. He names some of them specifically in verses 2 and 3. I wonder who would you name today? Who are the people in the family of God, that God has put beside you in your life. The people that propel you to a Jesus-centered joy. Who are those people in your life? Or who would say that you're that person to them? I'm not talking about who's your golfing buddy. That's great if you've got a golfing buddy. I'm not talking about your girl's night out friend. That's great if you've got a girl's night out friend. Those things are good. I'm talking about who are the people that don't let you take your eyes off Jesus? Who are the people that help hold your heart in check? Who are the people that love you so much, they're going to do whatever it takes to keep you focused on true joy? What's God provided us with? Our means, God's people beside me. Secondly, God's peace inside me. Verse 4, Paul says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Watch the peace here. Don't worry about anything. Can we just underline, circle, bold, anything? That's a big word right there, right? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Can we just circle that too, everything? And tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. And then you will experience God's what? Peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. You know what it means when a preacher says one final thing? Absolutely nothing. He says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. That's where our minds have got to get, church. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. What are the means, the resources God's given us to help us have this unified Jesus-centered joy. we got God's people beside me. God's peace inside me. And then God's provision for me. How many of you know that all you've ever needed, His hand has provided? And all you ever will need, His hand's going to provide. Sometimes He provides by meeting the need. And we like it when He does that. But sometimes He provides by giving us strength. When the need goes unmet. So therefore in a roundabout way. He does meet the need. Just not the way we would have drawn the play up. He says verse 10. How I praise the Lord. That you are concerned about me again. What have they done? They took up a a love offering right. To help him. These people he met 10 years ago. they, They still hadn't forgotten him. And he says I praise the Lord. That you're concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me. But you didn't have the chance to help me. Watch this. Paul says, not that I was ever in need. Paul never looked at his circumstances and thought to himself, man, I am lacking. I think he would go back to the psalmist and say, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm not lacking anything. He says, not that I was ever in need. Because I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing. Nothing. Or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. He wasn't talking about winning a ball game. He was talking about, I know that sometimes God's going to provide the need, and sometimes God's going to provide the strength when He doesn't provide the need the way that I thought He would. And I can live in that. Even so, verse 14, you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. I didn't need it. God would provide it, but he's used you, and I'm thankful for that. Verse 15, as you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. Who do you think was probably instrumental in the financial support of the church of Philippi? Huh? Y'all scared me there for a minute. I was about to bust up on somebody. (laughs) Who do you think was probably responsible for the financial support from the church of Philippi? I think Lydia, man, I think she was networking with other people, right? And using that in the kingdom of God. He says, you were the only ones. No other church did this. Look down to verse 18. He said, at the moment, I have all I need and more. I'm generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They're a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me, he's going to take care of you. He's not talking to Philippi anymore, at least not just Philippi. He's talking to you, Grace Life, and me. He says, the same God who's met every need I have and given me grace every step of the way, that same God will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I got God's people beside me, and I have his peace in me, and I have his provision for me. Can can you hear how much Brother Paul loved that church at Philippi? And he so wanted them to be united in their Jesus-centered joy. And I want us to be united with them today, too, in that same Jesus-centered joy. Me and Pastor Mike, we were talking this week, and I said, Mike, if, if we had this opportunity today, right here at Christmas, to worship with the congregation at Philippi, can you imagine? There's Lydia and her household. It'd be noisy. I just think it'd be a noisy church service, by the way. I just think the Philippians would be off, off the chain crazy in the room, right? A bunch of ex-cons running around hugging everybody, you know, the jailer and his household, the young slave girl that's been released and set free, and all these people are in this room worshiping with us. I said, Mike, can you just imagine what that would be like? And I wonder, what what would be the lead-off song we would sing?